0: RTL Original Podcast. In today's episode of DNA, the Luxembourg Crime Podcast, two homeless men were viciously attacked in the summer of 2008 in Luxembourg City's Petrus Valley. The first victim was killed on the spot. The second victim survived and managed to flee the scene. The crime scene is a busy area by day, but completely deserted at night. And once the city lights had been switched off, someone unleashed their attack. Who was the killer and why did they do this? Welcome to DNA. Now, as mentioned in the introduction, today's case takes us to a beautiful area of Luxembourg City called the Petrus Valley. Before we start going into the case in more detail, I'd just like to sketch a bit of a picture for those listeners who may not be as familiar with this district of the city centre. This will also help us understand why the crimes took place in this specific area and how they could have occurred in the first place. Laid out in quite a romantic setting, the Petrus Valley and its parks combine two very opposing features. On the one hand, you have these steep slopes, impressive rock formations and the ruins of the city's fortifications and bastions. Then on the other side of the valley, the contrast of vast greenery, a diverse range of trees, wide lawns and picturesque flower beds. And in the center of the valley is the actual Petrus, a stream that was channeled back in the 1930s, which is around 13 kilometers long and flows through the Grund district before joining the Alzette River. The area is popular amongst tourists and locals alike. During the day you will often spot workers on their daily lunch breaks, taking meetings out into the sun, joggers, skaters at the skate park that was set up there, and just families out to catch some air. But at the same time it is also a very deserted and shielded off area within Luxembourg City. There are basically no homes in this part of the valley, it really is just a park. And even though it is a welcoming place to be during the day when there are crowds, it is not an area you would feel most comfortable walking through at night. It's going to be quite empty, eerily quiet with only the sound of the flowing water in the background, and everything is far away from the larger crowds. The main paths are well lit, but there are some dark corners and fields that run far off from the main tracks, and lights are centrally controlled, meaning they switch off in the early hours of the morning until sunrise. The Petrus Valley often sees many homeless people. Even though there are social services available within the city, they can sometimes be overcrowded and cater to a lot of people in a limited space. Sometimes people prefer to be alone, even if that would mean having to sleep outside. And there are numerous park benches in the valley, and this is exactly where today's case begins. On Friday, the 8th of August, at 2.15pm, a runner in the Petrus Valley spots a man lying on a park bench. Initially, the runner doesn't think much of it, as he believes the man to be asleep, but he quickly notices that something doesn't seem quite right. There's a lot of blood on and around what he believes to be the sleeping individual. This is not one of those park benches right next to the path, but at the end of a little trail that goes off the main path for maybe 20 metres, One really has to look around to see the person lying there, and that may explain why somebody only spotted him at 2.15pm in the afternoon on a regular workday. The jogger walks up closer and stumbles upon a violent crime scene with a dead body. The man's head has been bashed in, and there is a lot of blood on him and around the bench, staining the walls of the cliffs that rise high above the valley. The runner dials 112 and informs the operator of what he's just come across. Forensic investigators and police immediately arrive at the scene, and based on the injuries, are quite quickly able to come to the conclusion that this was not some sort of random accident, but a violent death. Leading the investigation is Christian Kiefer, the chief investigator of the Homicide Department. It is unclear as to why anyone would harm a homeless man so brutally, and Kiefer and his colleagues suspect that numerous individuals could potentially have done this, whether it was an extremely violent group of teenagers or was the result of a fight, possibly between two or more homeless individuals. At first, police could not identify the victim, so they turned to colleagues abroad for help. This was not due to the severity of the injuries and the body not being identifiable due to the damage, but rather because the victim was not publicly known in Luxembourg, and there was no record of him anywhere when comparing his fingerprints to the police's database. Usually, authorities will be checking if the person is carrying an ID, a credit card or driver's license that may allude to his or her identity. But there were no such items to be found. So police shared the fingerprints of the man and asked German authorities whether they could help their Luxembourgish counterparts. Well, the Grand Ducal police were in luck because German authorities could indeed identify the individual. The victim was identified as the 45-year-old Peter H. H. Police then followed up by releasing a photo to local media, hoping that this call to witnesses would start bringing people forward that could potentially help investigators start piecing together the puzzle of this gruesome death. One man who saw the picture and contacted police was called Paolo R., who told police that Peter at one point used to be his boyfriend. Of course, being Peter's ex-boyfriend meant that Paolo could give some very extensive and important background information on the victim, Let's go through Peter's life very briefly. Peter had studied mechanical engineering in the German city of Saarbrücken, but had broken off his studies before joining his father in a machine company. Peter married his wife in 1992, and together they had two children. He was a known gambler and alcoholic, and in the 90s was even involved in a bank robbery in Germany, although there is nothing we could find about this event. In 2001, Peter's family found out that he was homosexual and bisexual, and so he decided to leave his family and move to Luxembourg together with his boyfriend, Paolo. It seems like this relationship was said to falter rather quickly as well, as Paolo told police that Peter never really told him the truth about numerous things in his life, including whether or where he was employed and how he was making a living. The two separated in 2006, And since then, Peter has not been in contact with Paolo, his family, or children. The first time Paolo heard of Peter again was through the call-to-witness alert in the media. At the time of his death, Peter had no fixed address. He was not a single child. He had a sister called Steffi, who was living in Germany at the time, and who was aware that her brother was staying in Luxembourg. In fact, Steffi had contacted the Grand Ducal Police several times in an attempt to track her brother down, and she even came down to Luxembourg to look for him in person, but to no avail. Peter was known to police for some minor offences, as he was caught several times for shoplifting, although these were often food items only and sometimes even just for a packet of sweets. Other homeless individuals did not seem to know Peter very well, but he was regarded as a clean and hygienic individual, for example, he was frequently spotted shaving at a fountain. He would then go on to sleep in the Petru's Valley, mostly on the same bench, and this was the bench he was found dead. An autopsy of the body was carried out by a medical examiner. While the medical expert was unable to clearly identify and establish the exact time of death, the examiner placed Peter's death between 10:30 p.m. on Thursday the 7th of August and 8 a.m. on Friday the 8th of August. He had suffered several blows to the head that would have smashed his skull in several pieces. Also, the report showed that Peter H. was most likely attacked out of nowhere in his sleep, as there were no marks of attempted defence. They also point out that the public lighting in the park was indeed centrally controlled, and that the lights would have been switched off when the attack was unleashed. Okay, so these are the results by investigators and the medical examiner. But what occurred exactly? Who is the murderer and what was his motive? Police were left rather clueless for three weeks following the death of Peter, but similarities could be drawn to a second event that occurred in the same area within 200 metres to the first, roughly three weeks later on the night of the 1st of September. here's what happened there. A 24-year-old homeless man, called Emmanuel Q, is resting against a wall in the Petrus Valley at night. A man passes by and the two of them seem to get into an argument. The argument quickly escalates, and out of nowhere, really, Emmanuel is struck in the head by a wrench numerous times. Surprisingly, Emmanuel manages to flee and get away from his attacker, running onto the fortress wall that crosses the Alcet River, but the attacker goes in pursuit and gets back to his victim, grabbing Emmanuel by his shirt and pushing him over the wall. Emmanuel, who is already suffering a severe head trauma from being attacked near the wall, is pushed over and falls 11 metres into the freezing outset river below. Miraculously, he survives. He pulls himself to the side of the river, but is too weak to get out. He clings onto a stone for the rest of the early morning, before finally being spotted by a passerby four hours later. Of course, once the police hear of this incident, they draw immediate parallels between this attack and that of Peter three weeks earlier. In both cases, the victim was attacked with multiple blows to the head, at night, at a deserted location within the same area. Luckily, Emmanuel survived the attack and was able to tell police quite a bit about what he saw. And while he was unable to recognize the person, he believed his attacker to be a rather young individual. With that information in mind police began scouring the area looking for any clues or witnesses to help them further with the investigation ten days after the incident with emmanuel while investigators were looking through a plot of land within walking distance from both crime scenes they came across a little wooden shed it was the type of shed you might find in the garden to stow machinery or equipment but this one seemed to house an individual they noticed a man living inside and after questioning him about what he was doing living in the shed, they found that he matched the description provided by Emmanuel Q, the second victim. He too did not have a fixed address. Chief Investigator Kiefer questioned him on the spot, and he would later go on to say that the man seemed very friendly, cooperative and respectful. Despite the shed being an illegal residence, the man seemed to treat it as his home, taking good care of his personal items and keeping things organised. Kiefer asked the man to come join investigators at the police station. Before we discuss the questioning by officers, let's briefly step aside and share some details about the presumed assailant. His name is Decimo P. Originally from an area surrounding Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, he left the country at the age of 23. He had been living in Portugal since 1991, travelling to Germany, Switzerland and the UK several times, But there is little information on how he made a living or sustained himself. Decimo married his wife Sonia in Portugal in 1995, but it seems like this was a marriage of convenience as both Decimo and Sonia were homosexual, but this would have allowed Decimo to obtain Portuguese residency. In 2005 he worked in a restaurant in Tenerife and as a cook in Madrid in 2007. He met a German man in the later years and frequently travelled to Germany. Based on phone data later retrieved, investigators believed Decimo arrived in Luxembourg between the 26th of July and the 3rd of August 2008, only a week or so before the murder of Peter. When investigators began speaking to Decimo, the mood clearly changed compared to how he had first behaved when police found him at the shed. Police had a feeling that Decimo may well be connected to the death of Peter and the attempted murder of Emmanuel. Interrogators always aim to extract as much information from a suspect as possible. For the interrogator, it's the delicate process of creating the illusion of building trust and maintaining control of the conversation. Things start out with simple, non-threatening questions designed to elicit relaxed responses. The person being interrogated must feel unthreatened and respected. Then the pressure is built up. The questions become more focused. An investigator may lie to the suspect to induce them to confess truthfully. But without investigators ever mentioning the weapon that was used in the first attack, Decimo dropped the word hammer out of the blue. That was all investigators needed to hear. Decimo was the attacker, and in the end he confessed... To both acts. It's fair to say that Decimo had Severe psychological issues. He would have frequent rage attacks during the interrogation, at one point, even screaming that he hated women. In a later second hearing, he declined wanting to have a lawyer, and his personality was completely different compared to the first time police spoke to him. He seemed to test interrogators with smart questions, even though he had already admitted that he was guilty. And these psychological issues may have played an influential role in the murder he committed. Decimo told police that he felt ashamed of who he was as a person, and that in other homeless individuals he saw a reflection of himself. By executing the murder that killed Peter, he felt like he was hurting himself. He channeled his frustration into a violent crime. It's quite a sad story, and raises the question whether Decimo could have received help before it was too late. Kiefer, the chief of the homicide department, Explained that there tend to be three main reasons for a murder. It's either hate, jealousy, or greed. But serial killers, which is the category Decimo falls into, tend to be different, with murders either being sexually motivated or executed due to psychological damage. Decimo was taken to court, where he pleaded guilty and was handed a 25-year prison sentence, meaning he'll be behind bars and in a psychological institute until at least 2037. He was, however, given Article 7 of the Penal Code, which states, and I translate from French, The person who was suffering, at the time of the facts, of mental disorders having altered his discernment or impeded the control of his acts, remains punishable. However, the court takes this circumstance into account when determining the sentence. The case of Decimo P., The death of Peter H., an attempted murder of Emmanuel Q., was soon to be known as the Hummer Man, or the Hammer Man, due to the choice of murder weapon. Decimo had found and stolen the hammer from the shed he was staying at. He is widely regarded as Luxembourg's first serial killer, even though Emmanuel Q. survived this horrific incident. That's it for this week's episode of DNA. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this story. See you soon.